is Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OT and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to my OT Journey podcast. Have you seen the 2021 My OT Journey Planner? This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. This planner is a must for OT students and practitioners. Check it out at myotjourney.com. Welcome to the My OT Journey podcast. Today, we are joined with two guests, and I'm so excited for this podcast. We're joined with Brent Braveman, who is an occupational therapist, but a super, super occupational therapist, not just any occupational therapist. Um, he's a fellow of the AOTA. He's a director of rehabilitation services at the MD Anderson Cancer Center, and he's a real inspiration to all of us. Um, welcome. Welcome, Brent. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. And we're also joined today with Michael Roth. And Michael Roth is a third-year student from Stony Brook University. He is a volunteer for the My OT Journey podcast. He's a trainee, and he trains so many students. I'm so, so grateful all the time for his help with this podcast platform. So welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be part of this interview. Great. So we're going to start. Michael will start um, the interview talking um, to Brent about his you know, career path and his past experiences in the field. And then I'll chime in at the end um, with questions about service and about inspiration and books and all that fun stuff. So, Michael, you can, you can start. Absolutely. Uh, first, Brent, I want to say how excited I am to be part of this, uh, this interview and to interview you. I'm having a little bit of an OT student nerd moment. I just <laughs> read your population health and occupational therapy health policy perspectives article in a class maybe two weeks ago. So being able to interview you today is kind of like a little bit like meeting my, you know, my hero, my star. So I appreciate you spending the time <laughs> well, <that's>, with us. <laughs> uh, that's great. That's great. I'm glad, I'm glad someone is still reading that article. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I love about the My OT Journey podcast is we get an opportunity to talk to occupational therapy leaders about what brought them into the profession. So I have the opportunity to talk a little bit with you about what made you become an OT, starting with um, your high school career and growing up. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe some roles, routines, or occupations that were meaningful to you and maybe led you to looking to occupational therapy as a career choice? Sure. Uh, so growing up, um, uh, you know, in grammar school and, and uh, junior high, uh, I was very involved in, in the YMCA. Uh, I started out uh, swimming and uh, there is, uh, in YMCA's, it's what's called the Leaders Club. Uh, and uh, it's for uh, kids 12 years um, through 18. Uh, and the, the focus is on teaching you uh, leadership skills. You uh, learn how to uh, teach others um, sports, um, you know, swimming, volleyball. Um, so I became very, very involved in the YMCA. I swam. I became a lifeguard. Um, I worked at the Y through, um, all through junior high and high school and college. Uh, and in high school, I was certain um, that I was going to go to Springfield College in Massachusetts, uh, which, has, which is sort of famous for grooming um, leaders in the YMCA system. Uh, so that re was, was my career plan. 
uh, and I had um, a great role model, um, role models. I was involved in the Leaders Club at, at the New England level, uh, and so was, was set on that. Um, as I sort of got uh, more toward college, you know, one of the things I learned about working as a, a program director in a YMCA is that you work 60 hours a week, uh, and your um, salary is very, very low. Um, I mean, you have to really, really um, you know, love that job. Uh, and so I started to learn a little bit more about some of the realities of work. Uh, and as I um, started to look forward toward, um, toward college, uh, I became interested in physical therapy uh, initially. And so I volunteered at a local hospital, um, Bangor, um, uh, uh, Bangor um, Health, and uh, volunteered in the PT department. Um, and went and was going for a few weeks, and uh, I, I just decided that it just wasn't for me. Um, I didn't find it interesting. Um, now, it was acute care, and it was, you know, a small community hospital, so uh, I saw the PT do a lot of, um, you know, stair training for people who had sprained their ankles and, um, you know, some really basic stuff, but it just wasn't, um, you know, sort of getting me excited. So um, I let the, the PT that I was observing know that um, that's what I decided and I wasn't coming back. And she was great. Um, she asked me what I liked. Um, she asked me what I didn't like. Um, and at the end of the conversation, she said, you know, it's perfectly fine for you to, to, to stop coming if you're not interested in PT, but I want you to do me a favor. You really sound like you want to be an occupational therapist. Uh, and so she made me promise to go volunteer a few weeks in the OT department. Um, and I went and I saw uh, people working on ADL and IADL and brainstorming about getting into their homes and um, you know, doing all kinds of things that I found creative and interesting. Uh, and so I was hooked. Uh, and so when I went to school, uh, I, I um, got a bachelor's degree. So I made my career choice when I was uh, 17. Um, uh, applied to a number of baccalaureate programs and was accepted at a number of programs and decided to go the, to the University of New Hampshire. I think that's such a great story, and I think that's a great story for a couple reasons. A lot of the interviews that I've done so far and a lot of the occupational therapists that I've spoken to have said that physical therapy is the first thing that they thought about, um, that occupational therapy maybe wasn't really even on their radar. But this is the first time that I've heard a physical therapist actually recommend somebody to occupational therapy. So it's nice to hear that our partner professions are supporting one, one another, even back when you were going to school. I want to just, uh, I want to ask a quick question about the um, le the leadership club at the Y. What was the age group that you were working with, and was that was it was it the population that you really enjoyed uh, in that job, or was it more just the being a leader in programming and things like that? Sure. So the leaders clubs are um, focused on kids. It's like a, um, starts I think maybe at eleven or twelve um, up through uh, high school. And, you know, depending upon your age, you either uh, volunteer or you help out with um, classes. Uh, you know, uh, we would volunteer on Saturdays and help doing various things with the basketball league and with swim meets. Uh, and then as you get older, um, if you're interested, like I was, um, I, I went through a, a course to become a lifeguard, and so that's what I did uh, during summers, and I worked at, uh, through college um, at the university as a lifeguard. Uh, and then I, uh, you know, got, got more involved in teaching um, volleyball, and I ran fitness classes. 
Um, so I really found that I enjoyed that engagement with others. Uh, and I always had an inclination toward teaching uh, and working with others on, on skill sets. Uh, and also, I always say, you know, I was sort of that kid um, who wanted to be in charge of everything. So you know, I, I wanted to be a student council president. Um, I ended up being vice president because my friend Claire was one much smarter than I was. Um, and much more popular. <laughs> so, so she ended up becoming student council president, and I, I, I became student council vice president. Um, but I, I was that sort of kid that I always wanted to be um, leading. And so um, as a matter of fact, I, for the Bangor YMCA, I was president, uh, president of the Leaders Club um, for three or four years. Wow, yeah. And I find I resonate a lot with that story personally. I first off am the very much the kind of person that loves to go out and do things and take charge and uh, do exciting occupations and, and live my life. But I also relate a little bit to you going and pursuing leadership at the YMCA as a degree and as a career opportunity and realizing that it wasn't going to necessarily pay the bills. I, for many years, was a farm manager um, and loved the career, loved working, you know, tilling the soil and tilling the land. But when you're making $15 an hour without health insurance, you have to start thinking about other careers that maybe fit into the kind of things that you love to do while still being able to help you to support yourself in all of those desired occupations. So when you went to school and found that occupational therapy was that career for you, what was that transition like? Was it an easy one for you starting occupational therapy school or a difficult one? It was easy. Uh, I became you know, immediately interested uh, when I, I went to school, it, it was a baccalaureate program. Uh, your first semester, you did almost all of your prereqs. Um, I'm sorry, I'm your, you know, your general education course is not your prereqs. Uh, and so all your electives. Um, and then um, your second semester, um, from that point on, you were in the same room with, you know, except for labs, you were in the same room with the same group of 50 students um, you know, all day long. Uh, and I, I really became interested. I had, had um, very interesting, um, very encouraging uh, instructors. Uh, Betty Crapo, uh, who um, taught at, at uh, uh, UNH uh, and uh, was a mentor of mine and is um, still a, a wonderful colleague. Um, Alice Seidel, um, some other faculty who just um, were incredibly inspiring. Um, and I was immediately um, interested in the problem-solving aspects and the creativity aspects, um, and particularly the, the meaning that um, occupations bring to people. I really connected with the idea that you know, occupations are what we do that provide us our, our identity. Uh, and when something happens that gets in the way of that, that's a threat to our identity. So I really connected early on with that idea that um, you know, this, this idea of um, uh, uh, being, becoming, um, and that occupational therapists um, help people continue to be who they are. That's really inspiring to hear, and it's one of the things that I love about the profession as well. Part of the audience of this podcast is students that may be looking into occupational therapy or maybe have never even heard about it. Could you really quickly describe what occupation is and then why 
your professors like Betty Crapo and Alice Fidel were so inspirational in their describing of occupation and how OTs can assist in getting people back to doing the things they love? Uh, sure. So when I explain occupation, I explain it as simply as occupations are the everyday important things we do. Uh, and that, that sometimes those occupations are um, formed into routines that help us perform our roles, uh, you know, valued roles of being a, a parent, a spouse, a sibling, um, a worker, a volunteer, uh, and that we have other roles, uh, people define roles in different ways, that you can, um, you know, you have a role as a religious participant, or, um, you know, I, I uh, do what I call wogging, um, about five times a week, which is I, I used to run marathons <coughs> and um, run, and now my knees won't tolerate it. So I walk um, as quickly as you possibly can. I do about a 12-and-a-half-minute mile. Um, and so I call it wogging. Um, and, you know, to, to me that's, that's my, um, my athletic role, um, my uh, uh, health role. Um, so I think about roles very creatively. And so the, the beauty of occupation is – that it's both the means and the end. Uh, so um, in what we do in our everyday life is occupation as ends. Um, I think it was Catherine Trombley um, who talked about occupation as means and occupation as ends. Um, so the everyday important things we do, um, our IADL roles, um, you know, taking care of our house, taking care of our pets, um, our worker role, our student role, all of those things, uh, occupations are meaningful to us um, their occupations end because we, we do it because they're of value to us. And so the wonderful thing about occupational therapy is we use occupation as means. Uh, we work with our clients and we enter um, occupation with them uh, and use that, those same occupations that they would normally perform in their daily lives um, as therapy. Uh, and so um, we have an ability to directly touch um, our clients' lives, and I think that's really special. I agree, and I think that's one of the most exciting parts of occupational therapy because we all have different things that we love to do, but occupational therapists get to learn what their clients love to do and use those things to help them live more independently and get back to you know living the way they were prior to an acute injury or living more independently uh, as they grow older. So it's nice to hear that you resonate with the same things that I think many occupational therapists resonate with when they think about what makes them love the profession so much. Was there any individual aha moment that you had in school? Maybe a specific lesson by a professor or a specific interaction with one of your fieldwork clients that really kind of had those light bulbs go off and made you think, this is really what I'm meant to do? Well, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so one thing I, I think of is during um, a fieldwork experience. So I did my mental health uh, fieldwork at the Colorado State Hospital. And it was with um, long-term residents of the state mental health system. And uh, we did what was, I think, um, you, might, you might think is sort of stereotypical intervention. Um, there was a lot of crafts. Um, you know, so there were several uh, groups per day. There were drop-in hours. Um, I initially saw clients come in uh, and saw them engage in what I initially thought were repetitive 
um, activities. So coming in and working on um, uh, painting a piece of pottery and glazing it, um, and I saw these items you know, get finished, um, you know, temporarily get set aside, and then eventually get thrown away because they never were put to use. Uh, and so initially my reaction to that um, was very negative. <clears throat> and uh, I, when I went to school in the 80s, um, it was sort of the height of the biomechanical area, um, era. Um, so we didn't necessarily in all of our coursework get a, you know, super deep grounding in occupation. Um, sort of the, the impairment model was um, sort of coming into vogue a little bit. Uh, and so um, you know, initially I watched these clients come in and I, I wasn't understanding. And uh, I really clashed with my uh, fieldwork supervisor. And one of the things she made me do, uh, because we didn't learn any crafts in my OT program, um, and she was shocked. Uh, and so uh, she uh, wrote out a contract, and in order for me to, one of the things I needed to do in order for me to pass my field work was that every week I needed to learn <clears throat> a new craft, and I needed to, on Friday, I needed to show her a product um, and explain to her the process of creating that project, <coughs> product, excuse me, um, and you know, talk to her about what was required. So essentially, you know, describe an activity analysis. Uh, and you know, despite the conflict that I had with her, and I just say, you know, despite the fact that at times I was really unhappy in that field work, um, I eventually realized that these clients um, had roles. Um, they were involved in routines. Uh, you know, they had significant mental illness that prevented them from living independently in society, um, but they valued their daily routine. Uh, they had habits that supported these, those daily routines. Um, and once I saw that and realized it, then I understood the connection between uh, the occupations and their routine, and that um, the, the end product of a piece of ceramic after it was glazed, um, you know, was important to them. Um, but you know, much like somebody who uh, uh, works and creates some sort of product that's sold, um, while they have a sense of pride in that, they're not attached to that product because they know it's going to go out and be sold. Um, and it was almost the same thing with these clients. It was the process. It was looking forward to being um, in the setting. Um, it was looking forward to interacting um, with the OT and the OTA and with other um, clients in a particular way. It was the structure to their day um, that really brought value to them. Um, and the occupations were a part of that. Um, but I wasn't initially seeing the value um, of that process. Um, I was too focused on um, what I thought was um, uh, meaningless repetitive activity, and that was not the case at all. I really thank you for sharing that experience because I think 
one of the challenges that many occupational therapists face is that people can look at what we do and say, you know, you're just playing with a kid or you're just doing an activity, a craft or washing dishes with your, with your client and think that there really isn't anything behind that and there really isn't any importance to that. And I think your story really eloquently describes how the things we do in our day-to-day life mean more to us than we might expect as able-bodied individuals. Individuals, and that when there's an acute event or if we had some kind of disability that we would we might realize that those routines and rituals are really important to living a happy and fulfilling life and it's nice to hear that you got that even in the era of the impairment model and the biomechanical frame of reference because I know that it must have been challenging to shift your mindset from that school process and thought and frame of reference into the uh, handicrafts that you were experiencing in mental health. I want to bridge a little bit to after field work. Once you graduated, what was your first job like and what was that experience shifting from school to work like for you? So my first job was at Gaylord Hospital in Wallington, Connecticut, and it was inpatient rehabilitation, which is a setting that I uh, thought that I wanted to work in. in. In school, I developed an interest in spinal cord injury. Uh, and I interviewed a number of places and decided on Gaylord because uh, it gave me an opportunity. Uh, Gaylord had about, I think, about 120 beds, uh, and they all were private rooms. And the way that they did patient assignment was you were assigned rooms, um, and whoever was admitted to your room was your patient. Uh, now, they had four you know, major areas, which was CVA, um, stroke, um, traumatic brain injury, um, pulmonary rehab, and spinal cord injury. Uh, and I was uh, really interested in spinal cord injury, so I loved you know, working with those patients. Uh, I, I found that I really struggled the most with patients with traumatic brain injury. Um, because I tend to be verbal and, uh, you know, in order for me to problem solve, um, it helps me to, um, to verbalize it um, and to hear, hear someone talk through it. Um, and, of course, with some patients with traumatic brain injury, um, you know, being too verbal and wanting to explain, um, you know, is exactly what the patient doesn't need. Um, so I, I struggled initially much more with understanding cognition uh, and, uh, what, and, and becoming successful for strategies with those clients. Um, what I really appreciated about that job was that dealing with those four populations uh, helped really cement for me the idea that, um, sure, when you work with somebody with a spinal cord injury, uh, you know, there's uh, condition-specific knowledge that you need. So, uh, you know, it's really helpful if you're working with somebody with C7 um, quadriplegia um, to get really good at setting up a mobile arm support um, or setting up environmental controls. Uh, you know, it's really helpful when you're working with somebody with um, COPD um, to really understand uh, energy conservation, you know, um, work simplification, fatigue management, uh, you know, and, and so there's, there's condition-specific knowledge you, that you have, but being forced to work with those four different populations every day and shift 
you know, from one session to another, and, and you know, we, we did overlapping. It was not, a, not an issue at that, you know, point in time um, to have, you know, somebody come down and, and start for an hour and halfway through have another patient. And so, you know, at the same time, I might be treating somebody with uh, a, a spinal cord injury at the very same time that I was setting up somebody with COPD. Um, and, and doing that, that experience really helped cement the OT process for me um, and helped me really understand why we spent so much time um, on activity analysis. Uh, and um, seeing that that's uh, a, a simple and yet beautiful tool to understand um, a piece of someone's life. That's really good to hear as a student going into field work, knowing that um, we have all of this knowledge, condition-specific knowledge, but that OT process and learning the flow of working as an occupational therapist is something that we're all going to have to learn moving into field work this coming semester. And it's nice to hear that you can, we can go back to activity analysis, looking at all of the specific ways that somebody engages in an occupation and how we can best facilitate their engagement with that independently is reassuring because it, it's, it's a nice thing to know going into field work. And I think any students listening to the podcast can, you know, kind of tuck that into their tool belt and remember that for when they go into field work. So how long did you work at Gaylord Hospital? Uh, so I was there for um, maybe a little over a year and a half. Uh, I, I loved um, the job. I loved Gaylord. Um, I um, lived in, um, was living in um, Connecticut and um, just um, was not really enjoying, um, uh, you know, the, the setting um, outside of my, my work life. Uh, and um, I had done a uh, field work at AOTA. When I went to school, you had to do three field works. Um, you had to do a physical disability field work, you had to do a mental health field work, and then you had to do a specialty field work. Um, and almost everyone did uh, pediatrics. Um, I had really always had, had, always had an interest in learning and teaching, um, so I went to um, AOTA, um, which at, at that point was in um, uh, Rockville, Maryland, and uh, worked, did my field work in the Department of Continuing Education. Uh, and so um, a staff member at AOTA had been hired as the director of rehabilitation for a brand new hospital in Washington, D.C., National Rehabilitation Hospital. Uh, and when I, was, um, when I was looking for my first job, um, she was on, but they, the, the hospital was still being built, and she was, you know, doing um, developing policies and procedures. Um, and she said to me, you know, um, we're not going to be hiring for a while, but it's going to be a big staff. We're always going to be looking for people. Um, you know, when you're, when you're ready, if you ever want to come back to D.C., let me know. Uh, and so um, I loved my job in, in, uh, at, at Gaylord, but um, New Haven, Connecticut just was not my, um, my place in the world. Um, so after about a year and a half, I, I called up um, Deborah Lieberman, who was the director of, of um, uh, rehab services, and, and you know, told her that I thought I was ready to uh, move. And so I was down there, I think, that same week um, and interviewed. Um, and I had loved D.C., uh, and so I went to um, NRH, and it was also was an, an opportunity for me because I had developed a really deep interest in spinal cord injury. 
Uh, and so I went and was able to work for most of my time at NRH uh, in spinal cord injury, um, including a wonderful year um, where I worked as part of a team where uh, we uh, worked with people with very high-level quadriplegia who were ventilator-dependent uh, and were admitted um, so to, uh, in essence, be moved from one ventilator system to a new, um, more sophisticated ventilator system. Uh, and so um, really learned that was a special um, opportunity for me um, to work with those patients um, who were on ventilators. Um, it, it, it taught me a whole um, new outlook on um, human perseverance and the human spirit. Um, it really was a special experience for me. I think that's so, so exciting to hear, and I hope that listeners are as equally excited because part of the beauty of occupational therapy is how easy it is to go and get another job in a different setting or in a different state and be able to have that flexibility. I also like how working in spinal cord and working with vent-dependent patients, you were kind of pulling on that pulmonary rehab expertise and taking those little pieces of occupational therapy knowledge and applying them to different settings. It really shows that no matter where you start working and what field or uh, department you start working in, you're going to be gaining skills that are going to help you throughout the rest of your career. So tell me a little bit more about how long you worked at NPH and um, what that experience was like. Uh, sure. So I was there for about um, two and a half years, and uh, it was a great experience because when I uh, started, uh, only about half of the hospital was open. Uh, and so we were doing, uh, besides uh, being able to focus in spinal cord, which spinal cord injury, which is uh, what I was interested in at that point, um, it also gave me the opportunity to, um, to do program development early on. Um, so uh, almost all of us were worked on developing competency programs and developing continuing education. Uh, and it was truly set up as a, a learning organization. Um, the, uh, the staff was, was you know, very small. Um, the, the, the president used to, you know, the hospital used to walk around um, and do sort of daily rounds. Uh, and so, um, you know, you, you'd be, um, you know, be treating a session and he would walk through and he knew you, you know, he knew you by name. He'd say, hi, Brent, and he'd stop. He'd talk to you, you, know, to you and the, the, the patient that you were working with. Um, so that was a, a, a wonderful experience for me because, again, I was, was, I've always had an interest in um, teaching learning and, and in career development. Um, while I was in the D.C. area and while I was going to working at NRH, um, and, and my next job um, at Alexandria Hospital, where I became, um, that was my first management job. Um, while I was in D.C., I got my master's degree. Um, and it was a master's in education, but it was um, focused on um, uh, training um, development. So it was a, a, a master's in education and human resource development. Um, and for a, a short period of time, I thought I was losing interest in OT, um, and for a short period of time, I was convinced that I was going to become, uh, leave OT and go become a corporate trainer. Uh, and, <laughs> and then um, had some great mentorship and got, you know, pulled back into the profession and, um, you know, uh, uh, found my next, next experience and really sort of hit my stride. Um, but that 
the, the skills that I learned in my master's program, which was you know, barely heavily focused on adult learning, um, uh, the needs of the adult learner, uh, how to develop an effective learning experience for adults, and, um, and importantly, how to appropriately evaluate learning outcomes for adults. Um, so that, that whole time in D.C. Um, uh, at NRH and my next job at Alexandria Hospital, you know, uh, which is an acute care hospital, there just were five of us. Um, I was director of OT, I, uh, half time, and I did um, treatment half time. Um, that whole time in D.C. was um, a period of really rapid learning and, and development for me. So I look back on those, um, that, those five or six years very, very fondly. That's good to hear. And it's, I love how you went and got a master's in education and human resources and it shows that you could really expand your knowledge base. And I know you were saying you were looking to go into more a corporate, corporate training, but that got pulled back into occupational therapy. Is this when you started working for our national accrediting organizations and national uh, associations, or did that take a little bit of time? Uh, so it was, it was during my time in D.C., uh, so my, I've been very, very lucky in my career to have um, two true mentors. Uh, and my first mentor was Susan Robertson. She is an occupational therapy practitioner. She works at the National Institutes of Health. Um, and she was the, um, the uh, assistant director of the um, Department of Continuing Education. And she was my fieldwork coordinator. Uh, and so when I moved back to D.C., I reconnected with Susan, and um, she became a true mentor. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we would do things like every year at AOT conference, um, we would go out to dinner. Uh, and, you know, we would have a meal, and we would spend, you know, the, the first 45 minutes or so um, just sort of getting caught up and talking about our travels and, you know, our personal lives and gossiping. And, um, and then about the time that dessert came, she would sort of sit up and her posture she would change. Um, and she would look at me and she'd say, you know, something like, so, what's next? Uh, meaning, you know, what was the next thing that I was going to do? Um, you know, I, I had, had kept in touch with her since I had graduated from um, college, um, but it was really, it was during D.C., um, the District of Columbia OT Association had disbanded. Uh, and then um, uh, someone had brought it back together, um, but there were, you know, only about maybe 80 or 90 members. Um, and, you know, I went to a district meeting, and they were, you know, um, always asking for volunteers. So um, I think I volunteered on a conference committee or something. Uh, and then they were talking about um, looking for um, officers for the next election. Um, and Susan encouraged me to run for an office. Uh, and I said, well, you know, really the, the only office um, that's, that's open um, is vice president. She said, well, run. And I thought she was crazy. It was, you know, I've only got a few years of experience. Um, I'm brand new to D.C. Um, and she said, that's okay. Um, you know, she said, um, you know, do you think you can do it? And I said, I, I, I think so. I think it's going to be a stretch. And she said, you know, stretches are always perfect. You have to stretch. Do it. Um, so, I, so I ran. Um, I think it might have been, you know, one of those elections where, um, you know, um, everyone else stepped backwards. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was left standing, 
Um, but, you know, I became vice president. And then um, a year later, I ran and became president. Uh, and what that did was, uh, at that time, it was called CSAP, the Committee of State of, um, Association Pres Presidents. Um, now it's called ASAP, the um, Affiliated um, State Association Presidents, because um, state associations are, are affiliated with AOTA. Uh, and, but CSAP met every year in person at conference. So that was my first experience of going to conference um, and sitting in a meeting of other leaders. Uh, and you know, leaders from all 50 states, um, other folks who are very small associations, you know, West Virginia, um, states associations like the Dakotas where they were small but they were rural. Um, you know, states like Illinois and Texas and, and California, which, you know, at that point seemed huge to me, huge associations. Um, and so that was um, how I got my feet wet in um, association leadership. Uh, and I, again, it was a, a, another um, wonderful learning experience. And a, and a thing that I, I say to students all the time now is um, get involved. Do something. Do something that stretches you. Um, I have found, uh, I, I truly feel like I have gotten um, back tenfold um, everything that I have given to uh, associations and to AOTA. Because um, I've learned so much. I've gained so many skills. Um, I've developed such an amazing network of peers that I use all the time. Uh, and it's all because I've been involved in association leadership. Wow, I, you know, I, I, I thank you so much for your service, and I, and I really value that because um, for myself, this is my first time volunteering um, at AOTA, and I'm, you know, on the special interest, special, um, the SIS, the Home and Community Special Interest Section, um, I'm the Leadership and Management Coordinator, which is, which is so great for me as a person. It really helped me um, in terms of my professionalism, in terms of my leadership roles. I got to meet other therapists that are so inspiring and you know we get to write articles all the time and I wish almost like that I could tell my students and also my peers how valuable leadership is and how it's not super difficult to get involved in I think that's something that um, practitioners and students shy away from just because they're they're not sure what the first steps are or they're unsure how to proceed what would you tell a student or a practitioner that wanted to start service in our organizations in AOTA or even state level um, what would be the first step for them what do you think they should do first uh, so a couple things uh, so I, I think every state association is always looking for volunteers so uh, go to your state meeting go to a district meeting uh, you know, go and, and, and attend a couple of meetings if you need to do that and, and sort of, you know, get a feel for the group. Um, reach out to whoever is running the meeting. Introduce yourself. Uh, I um, suggest that every student should have a business card. Uh, and, you know, even if it's just a simple business card with your name and, a, you know, um, your first and last name and OTS um, and your email, um, that's, that's perfect. Um, so go to a meeting, uh, reach out to the leader, um, let them know that you're interested in getting involved, and ask them uh, what opportunities would be available. Uh, I think it's very seldom that people are going to, um, you know, just let that opportunity go by. Uh, and uh, in state associations, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities to 
uh, volunteer, you know, uh, we work with our clients to help them, them find the just right challenge. Um, and that's the same thing that we need to do in our professional lives and our, in our leadership journeys, um, is continually find the just right challenge. Uh, and I think a state association is a wonderful way to get started um, and would put people who are interested in um, becoming leaders. Um, uh, it's it's a, gr a great place um, to, to do that. Um, and I really encourage um, students to think of themselves um, as leaders. Uh, you know, I love that, that Ginny Stoffel, who is a recent past president of AOTA, um, and a dear friend and colleague um, and, a, and a, a mentor in, in ways um, of mine, um, in her inaugural presidential address, um, she talked about the fact that um, every leader needed to be a member and every member needed to be a leader. Uh, and you know, I, I encourage students to not think about leadership as um, some as only some big formal um, presence, uh, but that you can lead by getting involved. Yeah. So I think that's that's so insightful because students and new grads and practitioners often often think of it as you know being you know the head of a company being a manager, but really you, you know you can be a leader on so many different levels, and I think that's so important. Um, I wanted to ask you about your your books and your writing because you know um, you've written 25 peer-reviewed um, articles, journal articles, and 20 book chapters, three OT textbooks. Oh my goodness! As an author myself, I am like in awe of all of that. Um, how did you start writing? What advice would you give to those that are interested in writing or starting to write? Um, yeah, <laughs> advice please. <laughs> sure. um, so my first writing experience professionally was uh, really I give credit to my second professional mentor. Uh, in the early 90s I moved to Chicago, to Illinois. Uh, I was interested in getting a doctoral degree. So I took a job as the Director of Clinical Services in the Academic Medical Center at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Um, and it was a, a model where the academic chairs um, were also the official head of a service. Uh, so the academic chair of the OT department was Gary Kielhofner. So Gary, um, I had a split appointment. I, I reported to a vice president in the hospital, and I reported to Gary halftime. Uh, and um, I, I attended faculty meetings, and um, he was the person who first suggested uh, that I uh, publish something. And so my, my very first publication was with Gail Fisher, um, who's on the faculty at, at the University of Illinois, uh, uh, Chicago. Um, and we did um, you know, a, an article related to um, healthcare um, administration and management. And um, those were back in the days where uh, you know, you would work um, on something, and um, you literally would carry the floppy disk. Um, and, and today students may not, you know, know what a floppy disk is. Um, but it was like three by five inches, and it was literally floppy. You know, it would bend if, if you, you know, waved it back and forth. Um, and so you would, you know, save your, your work on the floppy disk, and then I would have to carry it the two blocks from the hospital to the OT department and hand the disk to Gail. <laughs> You know, and, 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 that just that gives so much more appreciation, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, that's how we, how we wrote in those days. 
But you know, I, I did that, and it was a great experience. It was a wonderful experience collaborating with somebody else. Um, and then Gary was just an amazing mentor. So uh, I started on my doctoral degree. Uh, you know, he did wonderful things for me, like he convinced my PhD advisor um, to allow me to do my dissertation um, the way that they, students at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, um, where he was on, on faculty, um, how they do um, their dissertations, which is they do a series of small studies and they publish um, each study as they go along. Um, so I, I only did one study, uh, but I set my dissertation up so that each um, chapter of my dissertation was a publishable article. Uh, and, and, I, and Gary really helped me with that. Um, right. And then I got interested in, um, uh, uh, because I um, got funding for my, dissert uh, my dissertation, and Gary and I did a couple of federal grants, uh, and so I knew that um, getting involved with grants meant writing. Um, and it was uh, an environment where it was incredibly collaborative. Uh, different members of the faculty were writing with other members. Uh, I was encouraged to start to pursue things on my own. Uh, and uh, Gary really taught me uh, how to write. Um, you know, I, I, I joke, there's you know, some memorable things um, that I, I remember him, him telling me. Uh, like you know, one of his favorite things to say was you know, as simple as, um, you're not writing if you're not writing. Um, thinking mm -hmm. about writing is not writing. Mm -hmm. um, you're, right. you're only writing if you're sitting down um, and, and words are actually going on the page. Um, and then he would say, bad writing is better than no writing. Mm. Okay, those are you some know, good tips. Yeah, you know, and, and, and to this day, actually today, um, today I was working on, um, in, in the, I'm working on the third edition of the management um, text, and there's a new um, feature called Evidence in Action. Uh, mm. And uh, I was working on a chapter on organizations and understanding organizations, and I was working on this Evidence in Action piece, and I just was not feeling it. Um, and, um, but, I, but I just did it anyway. I got some words on the page, um, and you can always go back and edit. Right, 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 right. But yeah. you know, I, just, I, I hear Gary's you know, voice in the back of my head saying, uh, you know, uh, thinking about writing is not writing. If you're not getting words down on the page, you are not writing. Uh, and so uh, it, it was Gary and, and really all of the faculty at UIC. Uh, and so for, for folks who are interested in potentially um, writing, um, network. Um, find someone else who is interested in what you're interested in. Um, volunteer. Uh, so you know, students, if there is a faculty member who is working on something that you're interested in working on, um, go to them and say, can I help you uh, with something that you're working on? I'm, I'm happy to help with research. I want to learn about the writing process. Um, you, you have to, I would just say, you know, take a, sh a chance. Um, not every you know, shot is going to land, um, but reach out to people, network, find collaborators, uh, look for an opportunity. So um, my, another one of my very early uh, leadership roles was in the special interest section. So the SIS is, is how I came up through AOT leadership. So I got involved in the administration management special interest section and um, wrote uh, articles for uh, the SIS newsletter 
um, at, at that point. Um, so that was part of the writing that I did. Um, and so um, the special interest sections are always looking for people who are willing to write um, to write. And you can write about your practice experience. You can do you know, case-based writings. Um, there's lots of opportunities for someone who's interested in writing, uh, and uh, you can find those opportunities by networking with others. That's, that's great advice, uh, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, as someone that you know, is, is trying, you know, trying my best as a new author to you know, write, write what I'm supposed to be writing and actually getting it on paper. Um, so I thank you for that. Um, your, your, your career path has been so rich and so full of so many different experiences. I'm curious if you could just tell us one story that resonates with you as a success story and then one story or one experience that would seem like a failure but that you learned from in your career journey. Um, sure. So uh, in terms of a success experience, one of the things I am most proud about is my time as Speaker of AOTA's Representative Assembly, which is AOTA's policy-making body. Uh, and you know, it is a group of uh, like 75 or 80 voting members. So every state association has at least one representative. The larger associations have a, have a second. Uh, all the offices of AOTA are voting members. Um, people like the chair, um, you know, the chair of the SIS council, um, the different commit, you know, commissions and bodies, um, ethics commission, the VL, you know, um, volunteer leadership development committee. So it's this, this big group, uh, and they use uh, formal Roberts rules to get their business done. And so uh, running, um, leading that policy-making body for three years uh, and uh, addressing during my tenure um, a couple of relatively controversial items uh, that uh, you know, people felt um, very strongly about on, on both sides. Uh, that experience taught me I, every experience I've had in AOTA has enriched uh, my leadership abilities with different skill sets. And so that really brought together my ability to um, see the big picture, um, see big tasks that have to be done, but then to be able to translate that down to the everyday things that need to happen to pull that off. Uh, and so um, you know, I was really proud of the fact that we started online meetings. Uh, I was speaker of, of the RA uh, you know, back in the, the 2000s when um, the recession hit, uh, and AOTA took a huge hit to their investments. Uh, and you know, I remember getting a call from Penny Moyers, who was the president of AOTA, and Fred Summers, who was the executive director, um, to talk to me about the RA meeting, the face-to-face -face meeting at conference. Um, because it's held in a hotel, that meeting costs like $150,000. Uh, and they were calling to say, you know, is there something, uh, would you be willing to be flexible? Is there something we can do uh, to decrease that expense? And by the end of the phone call, I said, well, let's just not hold it. Let's not meet face-to-face -face this, face this year. Let's, let's do it online. We're already doing some, you know, task groups and some things. Um, so let's do it online. And, and they said, can you do that? And I said, sure. Then <laughs> um, so I hung up the phone and I thought, how to God are we going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, that's something I've, uh, that those three years and particularly that experience of being able to um, pull people together 
Um, and people really rallied. Um, naturally, people were disappointed, but, but they understood. Uh, and so it was a great lesson about how to pull people together in difficult times um, to get something important done. So that would be my success story. Um, you know, in, in terms of, of um, failures, um, I, I would, you know, the, the story I would tell, and for anyone who's interested in association leadership, uh, I think I mentioned I was chairperson of the Administration and Management Special Interest Section, um, AMSIS. Uh, but the first time I ran for AMSIS chair, I lost. Uh, a, a good friend and colleague who works for AOTA, Deborah Slater, won. Um, and Debbie asked me to be on her committee. Um, so the second time I ran, um, I won. Uh, you, know, you know, later in my career, I, I ran for vice president. Uh, and was you know, super excited about it. I had been Speaker of the RA. Um, I ran for Vice President. Um, I had the unfortunate um, luck to run against Amy Lamb, um, who, was, um, you know, um, who was a superstar, um, and I lost. Uh, and I'll be honest, you know, that was a, was a devastating loss. It was something that I really, really wanted to do. Um, but um, when, I, when I think about myself, one of my favorite books, um, is the book Grit, mm -hmm. yeah. and, uh, you know, which is, which is a, a, a book about research, about the, the concept of grit, um, and about uh, the characteristics of people who keep going um, when everything else would tell them um, they should stop. Uh, and so I like to think of myself as that person who's been knocked down seven times and gets up eight. <laughs> That's, that's, that's so, really inspiring, yeah. Um, so, you know, here I am running for vice president again um, because right. I'm, I'm truly committed. Uh, I, I think I have um, a, a skill set that is um, uniquely qualified um, uh, to, make, to, to, to be vice president in terms of strategic planning and visioning, um, but also really understanding how AOTA works, how all the pieces fit, um, as well as, really being honestly connected to daily practice every day, leading a group of 100 OTs and PTs um, who deal with you know, the everyday challenges of productivity and documentation and justifying durable medical equipment and um, you know, now the stress of COVID and um, continuing education and what, you know, all the things that they need to do. Um, so I, I think that you know, my, my failures have simply led to my next opportunity. Um, you know, I ran for vice president and I, and I didn't win. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that it took me a little time. That was, a, you know, a hit to my ego. Um, but then I decided to run for secretary because I loved my experience on the board of directors and I won that election. So I got the opportunity to, to work on AOTA um, board of directors while we were developing um, through, the, through um, the Centennial Vision. Um, so I was on the board, um, you know, in, in, uh, during our centennial, um, but also I got the experience of being able to be on the board as we developed Vision 2025. Uh, so, you know, I, go ahead, sorry. Uh, you, uh, yeah, no, I, I, was, I was super excited to see that you were running for, um, for that office, for the office of vice president. And um, I think what you're saying is, is really so inspirational because I think as, I mean, I don't think, I know that, um, 
students and practitioners always have a hard time talking about failures and talking about situations that didn't go their way in their own career path. And you would think that these situations never occur, but they really do occur. And I think it's so important to speak about them and share them and learn from them and grow from them. And it seems like that's really what you're doing. And um, I was, you know, when I saw that you were running, I, I was reading your mission and all that. And it said that you feel that you're a servant leader. Can you just explain to us what that means to you? Sure. Uh, so, uh, among other things, I have written about leadership. And um, a number of years ago, it was Jenny Stoffel uh, who introduced me to the idea of servant leadership. Uh, and as I began to explore it, and as I've had my own learning experiences as a, a leader, uh, moving the, the, the current job that I am in, I love, um, but it is the hardest job I've ever had. Uh, you know, meeting the needs of, I've got about 145 people, um, you know, some are part-time, but 145 people um, in my department across five sites. Uh, and uh, OT practitioners, PT practitioners, rehab techs, business staff, um, you know, meeting the needs of, of all of those people uh, has, um, has been a, a huge challenge. And learning about servant leaders, learning about the idea that a servant leader puts those people, the people who they're working with first, that you put them out front, um, that you focus on community, um, you focus on uh, what their needs are, and by meeting their needs, by fostering their growth and fostering their development, um, that you move the, the organization or the department forward, uh, and that you can help people really rise to do exceptional things when you put them first. That's, that's so, so, so important. Can you just um, share with us, for those that are new to AOTA or new to the election process, what is the election process like? What, how do you vote? When does the election open? What's the process like? Uh, sure. So, and, uh, so first, the election, um, in order to vote, you have to be an AOTA member. Um, student members, uh, it doesn't make any difference what kind of member you are. Um, so a student um, vote, counts just as much as a practitioner vote. Uh, voting opens on January 6th and ends on January 27th. Uh, and if you just go to www.aota.org during that time um, and uh, look on the front page or type in elections, um, you'll be able to find the link and you'll be able to go in, um, enter your in member information, um, and vote online. Okay, great. That sounds pretty simple. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I mean, this has been a really, really great interview. Um, I know that you have a website that um, students and practitioners can go to, brentbraveman.com. Um, that's B-R-E-N-T-B-R-A-V-E-M-A-N.com, and also on Facebook, Brent Braveman, or Twitter, at Brent Braveman. Um, anything else that you'd like to share with our audience today? Uh, just, you know, thank you. I invite people to reach out to me. Uh, a couple of things I'm, I'm really interested in hearing about. Uh, I am very interested in uh, occupational therapy assistance and OTA students, uh, getting OTAs more involved in our association and, and more involved in association leadership. 
Um, uh, naturally, I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about furthering uh, AOTA's goals around um, increasing our diversity uh, and being a more member-inclusive um, organization. Uh, and, and finally, the last thing that I'm uh, very interested right now is I know that many of our practitioners are struggling right now. Um, I real, read some really concerning things in, in Facebook groups and in other places uh, about burnout, um, about the impact of uh, PDPM and PDGM, the two reimbursement structures that have come into play in the, the last year, uh, about student debt. Um, you know, people worried about the, the impact of the impending um, Medicare cuts. Uh, and so I, I'm very interested in those topics. Um, I'm also super interested in helping people learn how they can advocate. Uh, right now I'm serving on the board of the American Occupational Therapy Political Action Committee. Uh, and so um, advocacy is really central um, to what we need to be doing right now. Uh, and so um, I, I would encourage people to reach out to me about any of those topics or, or anything else that's on their mind. Thank you so much. I wish you great luck in this election, and thank you so much for all that you do for our profession. Thanks again. You're very yes. welcome. I agree. Thank you so much. You're Everything was so inspirational. Thank Bye -bye. you. Enjoyed it. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook at MyOTJourney, and on Instagram at MyOTJourneyPodcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!